Welcome to Plastic Model Mojo, a podcast dedicated to scale modeling, as well as the news and events around the hobby, where we hope to be informative and entertaining and help you keep your modeling mojo alive. Once again, and it's time for episode 66 of Plastic Model Mojo. And if it was any hotter than a bluegrass, it would be 666. Ain't that the truth? We'd be in hell, I think. So <laughs> for, for Kentucky, it's it's pretty stinking hot. I mean, we're flirting with 100 here. We're going to get 99 tomorrow. There's We're getting five or six straight days of of high 90s. It's, it's going to be warm. Well, what have you been doing in your model sphere to... Well, you know what? <laughs> My model sphere is great, but it it struck me a little bit how weird my modeling life is. Uh, last Thursday, or see Wednesday or Thursday, I, <laughs> at seven in the morning, I am uh, DMing with Dave Goldfinch, and we're showing each other our big missiles. Uh, wait a minute. That didn't sound right. Uh, <laughs> he's building a Mercury Atlas from Horizon, and... I'm building the uh, that SS2 from Bronco, and we we started DMing back and forth and showing pictures of where the progress was on the models. Then during the day while I'm working, I'm responding to one of our listeners, and I'll talk about later about uh, uh, you know just uh, uh, a modeling question. And then that night at 11.30, I'm on the phone with John Bonani talking about IPMS USA business. So, you know, my model sphere, if you had told me that would be part of my modeling life 10 or 15 years ago, I'd have told you you're crazy. But it's, you know, technology has a lot of downsides. But man, I got to say, it, you know, there's a lot of upside to to be able to talk to somebody in Australia at seven o'clock in the morning here, nine thirty at night there, answering questions for modeling during the day while you're working from home, and then, you know, late at night, what you're at while you're at the bench, wrapping up some IPMS USA stuff. It's pretty great, and I I, I cannot complain. I got to say, how about you? Well, I think you're going to have to f- figure out how to find a floating workbench. <laughs> I'm telling you what, that's probably true. I, I, uh, the next few days, at least, either I'm inside or I'm going to be in the pool with that kind of temperature. Oh, yeah. Pretty hot. So what's up in your model sphere? Oh, I tell you, I've been enjoying this little bit of banner back with uh, Evan McCallum, Mr. Panzermeister 36. <laughs> uh one of us said, I guess it was in our last episode or one before that, maybe that uh, that there were nine 3D printed track companies at present. Yep. And uh, we got a we got a message a few days ago where Evan quit back. Uh, there was actually ten. Well, I promptly replied that there were probably eleven since he sent that message moments earlier. <laughs> well, now he comes back and he says there's there's really like thirteen at present. I think yep. something like that. He just let us know that he's made good on his uh, promise for a review video. Listeners can expect the first installment of that. I mean, there's so many track options now that he's going to break this up into at least two parts uh, for now. Probably expanding on it later, maybe, because I mean, unless he just throws in the towel, I don't know <laughs> what he's going to do. He can only tread water for so long. 
But this new video drops Saturday, which should be the day after this episode drops. So please head on over to Panzermeister 36 YouTube channel and uh, learn all about 3D printed tracks. I'm anxious. I haven't watched it yet. He sent us a little preview option and uh, we'll have to check that out. Yeah, he sent us a preview. I did watch it. Uh, I'm pretty sure by the time I was done watching it, there would probably been another company that announced they were getting into it. It's a really well done video. And as Mike mentioned, it's only the first half. He had to break it into at least two videos because there are so many companies now doing this. What he did was really, really impressive and informative. Also, set him back a little money. So if you're inclined to join his Patreon, please do so because he is clearly putting that money back into being able to do videos like this where he previews $35, $40 sets of tracks. So, Mike, uh, I assume with this kind of heat, you've got to have a modeling fluid close at hand. I do. It's a beer tonight. Uh, I've dipped into the, the Three Floyds Brewing uh, Barbarian Haze. Now, this is the box that uh, spoofs the Tamiya. Easy 8. Easy 8 or, yeah, it's Easy 8 box, sort of. <laughs> yeah. It's a nice, solid IPA. I don't know if it's my favorite IPA from Three Floyds, but it's it's not bad. It is. It is it, now, uh, I've had that one previously, and I can assure you that you're going to have an enjoyable experience tonight. Oh, I know I will. It's just uh, sometimes I think I have a, a hops allergy to some degree. Oh, really? Yeah, and I think sometimes these IPAs kind of make me take some allergy medicine before I go to bed, <laughs> but not all of them. And I can't remember if this is one of them or not, so we'll find out. Well, take, take some allergy medicine before you go. What about you, man? What are you sipping on? You got a beer well, too. I've also got a beer. And you know what? Not only do I have beer, I have beer courtesy of a listener. Oh, yeah. Bill Webb from Canada came down to Wonderfest and uh, was kind enough to reach out to me on Facebook and he... Uh, we arranged to meet at Wonderfest. Unfortunately, we couldn't record a podcast from Wonderfest this year due to family graduations and stuff like that. But I managed to get out to Wonderfest for a little while. And he brought me Sleeman's Cream Ale from, uh, from Canada. Now, it's not a microbrew, but it's a local beer to the, to the area. It's about 5% alcohol and Oh, that's good. That's good. I'm, I'm, I think I'm going to enjoy this. I'll, I'll do a full report there at the at the end. But so far, I can say, you know, the Canadians are pretty good at beer. They really are. So I think I'm going to enjoy this tonight. All right. Well, while you're getting into that, we need to get into the listener mail because we've got quite a bit tonight. A lot of it's some good stuff. I know. I know you picked some of the Facebook message, messenger conversations out as well. So... Let's get in the mailbag, man. You got it. First up tonight in the mailbag is uh, John Fincher. And John does not give me a geography, so maybe he'll let us know where he's out and about from. And this came in like right after, I mean, maybe the night we were recording, I got, I got this one. <laughs> May 31st. The last episode. The last yeah. episode, yeah. Uh, a couple things. You had mentioned, we were, we were talking about in-flight models. 
Yep. And and you mentioned ma- magnetic suspension. It's yep. kind of the, the next kind of way to go, maybe. Yep. He says that Ravel used to have a series of kits called Magic Flight. Really? Where there's a big honking magnet in the base and some magnetic component or ferrous component you mounted in the aircraft. But this also involved a piece of monofilament wire. So, <gasps> oh, I think I remember that. So to keep these from zinging off the base, they, they were still tethered. But uh, I, I think we're about to an age where, you know, one of my coworkers has a model of the moon that's self-suspended. Right. And I, I imagine something like that might work. Well, and I've seen at Wonderfest previously a uh, sci-fi model, and I forget what it was, some sort of spaceship, where it it literally hovered over the base. It was done with magnets. And I think we're going to see more and more of the use of magnets. I don't know if you saw, but in the, in the last week or so, uh, somebody announced an F-16 kit in 48 scale, and one of the features is that the pylons, the armament pylons, and the weapons load will both have magnets in them, real tiny little, you know, one millimeter magnets. And this will enable the modeler to change out the load on the on the aircraft model when he wants to. The on the bench guys had a, had fun with that one in their last yes. episode. It's kinetic. That's who it is. Yeah, that's sure. kinetic. That's right. Uh, yeah, Ian said you can play with it now. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it really would be nice. To, I think that's a great option. And a, one of the things I think it's a great option, or uh, one of the reasons I think it's great is that weapons are pretty universal across a country's aircraft. So instead of having to do, you know, a new set of bombs and a new set of missiles for every aircraft model you complete, you can have one set with the magnetic uh, attachments and swap them and move them around between aircraft. Well, another advantage would be a lot of times those things are hanging on dodgy connection points. Yes. Because you've got all this painted stuff, right? Yeah. Unless you've been really careful to not paint certain areas, but this kind of would eliminate the need for all that kind of care. Yep, I agree. Well, he also mentions the Bomber Mafia, Malcolm Gladwell's book that you're reading or read now at this point. Uh, He says it's also covered in his podcast, season five, episode four through seven from the summer of 2020, if you want to go listen to that bit about it. Well, you'll have to put a link because I would like to, I have strong feelings on that book and I would like to to listen to a podcast on it. And he says he uh, mentioned that to the Seattle guys when he heard it. So maybe he did give me a geography. Maybe uh, maybe he is in the Seattle area. Sounds like he's up in the Northeast. Must be. All right. Well, thanks, John. Up next, another John, Jonathan Bryan. And he's in the in the UK, right? We've heard from him before. Yep. New Addington. He's got in this note. Uh, near the RAF base, uh, Biggin Hill base. Gotcha. Kind of famous. Yes. Just a little bit. Uh, he uh, took note of our uh, modeling injuries installment. Yep. And <laughs> oh, what was he doing? He was painting some uh, 72nd scale f- figures from Esky. And they're kind of like the Airfix HOW ones. They're in the yes. soft polyethylene crap that, you know. That you can't make stick. 
you can paint it, then, then you, you you bounce it once and half the paint flies off. Right. But anyway, he was using a candle to illuminate his uh, workspace. <laughs> I see where this is going. And he managed to set his hair on fire. Oh. oh. So uh, he went running to his parents and his, says his dad uh, beat him several times ar- around the head with the best <laughs> intentions. No damage beyond the need for a haircut and the smell of singed hair. That is one of the worst smells ever. I do not know why that is so obnoxious, but burnt hair smell is awful. Well, he gives us a link to, uh, I guess, a blog post he'd written at uh, Modeling in China, John's Models. Uh, I've got a link. um, That's new to me. He's not mentioned this before, to my knowledge. But anyway, he's saying his wife is probably the victim of his worst modeling-related injury and He's not going to repeat it here, but suffice to say, she sacrificed a toenail for the cause. Oh, man, it's hard to come back from that one. You owe her a lot. Well, hopefully he's paid that debt long since. Man, we got a lot, Dave. That's good. <laughs> That's great. Listen, I'm telling you, the, the community is the is the thing I enjoy most about this. Tolls Nilsson is back from uh, Denmark. He's got a good question, Dave. Which is, how do I get decals straight? Example, vehicle numbers or for a license plate. Any tricks? <sighs> oh, that's, <laughs> that, that is so tough. Um, well, first of all, keep in mind, okay, this is, this is a cheat. First of all, keep in mind, they're not always straight on the real thing because those things are done with stencils. And and if you look, there are plenty of them, plenty of, of photos you can find where the where the numbers are not straight. So don't feel bad if you don't get them straight. But that is a really great question that I've never considered. You know, I put the decals on, and if it's individual numbers that I've got to line up, I I put them on one at a time, and I have water and a very fine brush, and I tease it back and forth till I get it where I think it looks right. And I'm not sure if there's a good tip on how to make sure they all end up straight. I've got a little bit of experience from the rail car decorating. Yeah. Because the railroad I modeled was from my East Tennessee upbringing. Uh, It's the Clinchfield Railroad, which is what, 11 letters long. And a lot of their hoppers were rib-sided and there was only one letter between the the ribs. Right. So you've got 11 letters. You got to get straight across like four inches. Gotcha. Now you got a little bit of an advantage because it's an odd number of characters. So the first one you put on the model is the one in the exact middle. I hadn't thought about that. And then you work your way out left and right from that. Now license plates don't have as many numbers and a lot of them. I don't know how it is in Denmark, but in, in the United States, they're usually six, right? Right. So you might have to place the center two and then put the ones on the outside of that. Uh, it's, it's an old trick that my mother actually showed me doing science project posters in grade school. Huh. I had never thought about that at all, but that is a great idea. Now, that might work sometimes for some things is to start in the middle and work your way out. Another trick I learned was to be very meticulous cutting those things out of the sheet if they are individual and make sure that you have a horizontal line across the tops of all the characters 
because even trying to hide the film, that at least give you a little bit of a visual reference and, and yeah. at, the, at the light at the right angle. But it's hard. It just takes skill and practice. But uh, typically, if I've got a long string to do, I'll start in the middle and work my way out left and right. If another listener out there has a has a hack or a, or a tip about what they do that that helps them get those all even, I'd love to hear it because it's not something I'd ever considered. And yeah, that is something that, you know, if, as an aircraft modeler, you do enough that if there's if there's some trick I don't know about, I'd like to hear it. Up next is Stephen Lee, Mr. Sprue Pie with Frets. Yes, who's been on a tear lately on his blog. I need to get caught up then, but this is not related to his blog. Mr. Lee will be in the Chicagoland area in July and in the... The Northern Indiana area, Hammond, Munster, St. John. That's three Floyd's territory. Well, that's why he's riding in. He is offering to drop by on his trip and uh, act as liaison to help us get to the bottom of this kit box mystery. Well, I I would love that. I would appreciate that because it clearly is. We've reached out every way possible and it's clearly going to take a personal visit by somebody to get this accomplished. So I say, Stephen, you are uh, deputized, fully deputized as a uh, Mojovian agent 002. Sorry, one's already taken. It's our Jamaican meat patty connection up in Indianapolis. But uh, you are 002. So have at it, man. And I think Dave might be able to give you a contact of sorts. Yes. social media somehow. So let's get yep. on this. Let's, let's make this, let's make this happen. Let's make this happen. Absolutely. Cause they're going to come out with another one. Yep. Oh, I guarantee you a mon. I, I guarantee you we're going to see a monogram box at some point. Possibly. And maybe a Hasegawa. Good. Up next, Andrew White, Whitey from, uh, our friends over at, uh, the model geeks. Yep. <laughs> He's got a modeling injury too, Dave. Uh-oh. What did he do? <laughs> uh, it's the uh, infamous number 11 exacto Ooh. in the number one handle or the number two, whichever is the small one, I guess. Uh, rolled off the table. Had both hands holding parts. Ooh. Pure instinct. Slam your legs together. Yes. Yep. Uh, well, Mr. Whitey didn't get just to the average cut, Dave. Uh, he, he buried that number 11 into his thigh to the hilt of the blade millimeters from his femoral artery. Oh, <laughs> so his wife's an ER nurse. So he hollered out to her and, uh, she came down and told him to chill out. He was fine, but, uh, he's now has a square knife handle. De- definitely. You know, and that's the other thing I obviously having a knife handle with something on it to prevent it from rolling is is tip number one. But I've also wondered if maybe the folks who make the knife handles shouldn't put <laughs> the weight at the back end so that if it rolls off a table, instead of orienting nose down, it'll orient tail down. Well, maybe. That's a short drop distance, though. It is. Physics it is. might and not work. I've, and I'm here to tell you I have... I have had a similar injury, except it was my foot, not my thigh. Oh, God, it gives me the chills. Well, 
he says he looks forward to seeing everybody in Omaha. Same, yes. same for us, man. And uh, we're glad you didn't martyr yourself for the cause. That's right. Father Deacon Raphael Shelton from Oak Ridge, Tennessee. <laughs> oh, he also listens to the podcast while he's doing yard work. Good. I'm glad that it's not just me and OTB. I said one thing he really appreciates about all the modeling podcasts in the model sphere is the variety. He goes on to say he fully expects Terry Measley from uh, Scale Model Podcast to call out that that Luft 46 suborbital bomber is something he'd be interested in. And he says he truly enjoys that. You and I are grumpy about paper panzers and Luft 46. While, while the Canadians are excited for what if sci-fi possibilities. And he sent us a little gif of uh, it's John Goodman, Jeff Bridges. What's the movie? Oh, uh, it's Big Lebowski. Yeah, that's right. And it's the line. Yeah, well, that's just like your opinion, man. Yeah, <laughs> just like your opinion. Anyway, I, I'm going to go one further and say uh, to poke a little fun here. That the Canadians are notorious for being nice, at least till they get to know you, right? Yeah. <laughs> As we've learned. <laughs> <laughs> so I would argue that when they say, when they see a new release and those guys say, oh, that has great what if or sci-fi possibilities or better yet, that has great kit bash potential. That's just really a nice Canadian way of saying that I really wouldn't ever want to build that. And to be honest, I'm not sure why anybody else would want to build that. In the form presented. So my best thought of anything to do with that is to break it up and build something else with it. I think that's true. Uh, the, the Canadians are, uh, among, uh, among all their other attributes, they are unfailingly polite. I'm not sure you could ever get them to actually criticize a release. <laughs> Whereas, on the uh, other hand, I'm grumpy. I know of all the things that we still need a good modern kit of. And so every time I see another paper panzer, it just means that I, that's, that's more plastic that could have been to something that we really do need. Or not. We don't really need any of it, do we? <laughs> well, okay. Neat. If we're going to get that, that philosophical, that's just going to destroy, destroy the whole underpinnings of the hobby. So let's not go there. All right. Scott McPhee from way up north, Saskatoon. Sandy Bay, Saskatchewan, actually. Right. Ah, he's got a he's got a good one. That's a okay. not a it's not a highly technical question, but uh, he says he's thinking of starting a model build club at the school where he's a teacher. Yeah. It's a great idea. It is. Should we all build the same kit or is variety the spice of life? Should four or five weeks be the time span? That is a great question. If you all build the same thing, how we all have different interests, the downside of everybody building the same thing is that it might not spark the fire in one or more of the kids who aren't interested in that particular subject. Whereas if you let them choose among what they want, they're they may be more likely to 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 get catch fire in the hobby and stick with it. I, I would probably say that, yeah, I would go the route of variety, but you might do some investigation and, and, and background checking to see what kits of the various genre might be most applicable to folks just starting out at that at that age. 
Yeah. I know Airfix has some has some range a range of uh, easier build kits. That's true. Yeah, there's everything from airplanes to tanks to cars to stuff. So that Airfix that particular range might be a really in a, a really good way to let the kids pick the variety, and still you're all going to have pretty similar experiences. But I think that's a great idea, uh, starting a hobby club at a school if you're a teacher. Most kids ultimately may not stick with it, but you're going to plant the seed that may take 20 or 30 years to grow, but ultimately come back to to modeling. Well, good luck with that, Scott. Absolutely. Let us, let us know what you decide, and uh, if you got any more questions, feel free to ask. And send pictures. If you get the club going, we want pictures. And, and by the way, reach out to IPMS Canada. If you do this, reach out to them. I, I'm sure that they will. Uh, you may find some support from them for your endeavor. That's true. Another good idea, Dave. I'm full of them. You might be at your limit, though. I don't know. <laughs> All right. Well, my last one from the... Uh... From the email side of things is our good friend, Michael Karnaka up in New York City. Yep. With his question of the episode yet again. And man, he's been hitting it out of the park lately. Gents, I was wondering if there was a subject you had, quote, so ugly, it's beautiful for some unexplained reason. So I have to get or make a model of it. For me, for, well, for him, for Michael, it's the Soviet uh, uh, MI-10 helicopter. Yep. Massive beast, he says. Looks like a big metal grasshopper. And he sent a picture. And it's the equivalent of the CH fifty four Sky Crane. It was it was the the Soviet slash Russian version of our CH fifty four. Except they look looks like they took an existing helicopter and put it on stilts because it doesn't doesn't have the cutout spine area like yes. like ours does. Yep, you are right. Their so their engineering solution was a little bit different. Well, you got one. God, I got several. The uh, So Ugly, It's Beautiful. The Vickers Wildebeest comes to mind. The uh, Now, the, this is going to offend the Canadian listeners. Uh, the CF-100, the clunk, um, is, is not the most attractive aircraft in the world, but it's, I wouldn't call it ugly, but it's functional. What else? Are there... There's a number of these things. Uh, I know a lot of people like the OV-1. Well, it was a clear prop just released an OV-1 Mohawk. And that is one of those aircraft that, now to me, it's just plain ugly. But I know a lot of modelers for whom that is, it's so ugly, it's it's beautiful. And, And so they were real happy to see that clear prop release. A lot of those Vietnam era small attack and and observation planes, like the Bronco and the what's the little, yeah. little Cessna Dragonfly, yeah, yeah, they're all kind of like that, in my opinion. Yeah. So now on the armor side, let's flip the question to you. Now I know you're what what do you consider ugly in armor, and what do you consider so ugly it's beautiful? That's a good question. Um, I think those. Those two prototypes, the the Soviets built that SMK tank and the and the T one hundred, yeah, you know those went up to Finland for some newsreel work, and one of them saw a little bit of combat, I think. But 
those are interesting and they're not very attractive. That's for sure. Yeah. I like, I like those. The Hungarian Tehran and the self-propelled gun based off that as well. Aren't particularly attractive tanks, but uh, they have a very interesting look to them, I think. Yeah. Kind of uniquely Hungarian. And then I've I've got a a one twelve bust of uh of you, Dave. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> ow! Oh, oh, uh, yeah. Can somebody? There's a dagger back there. Can somebody just reach in my back? Pull that out. Oh, that that was cold, man. That just was kid- cold. Just kidding, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a good question. Armor. You know, a lot of the World War One tanks were ugly. I, that guy. What's that? That French one? The uh, Schneider. Yeah, the Schneider. Yeah. That that one's kind of interesting. I like that one. It's pretty. That's pretty ugly. Looks kind well, of I I would argue that uh German A7V is ugly. And as far as World War 1 tanks go, there there were some ugly and between the wars, there were heck the the Bob Semple tank, uh World War 2 New Zealand Bob Semple tank, which apparently Vargas is doing. Now, you want to talk about ugly. That thing is ugly. Well, that's a good question. Yeah, he continues to ask great ones. Well, from the email side, that's that's it for me. What what do you got? Uh, Facebook was has been very active the last two weeks. Lots of you all have reached out to us via Facebook Messenger, and please continue to do so, or or please continue to email us. Seriously, the interactions are are really what what makes this fun to do. Uh, the day that uh, I was started with DMing Goldfinch, in the middle of the day, I was working from home that day. In the middle of the day, a fairly new, uh, a fairly new returning to model modeler, uh, George Welch, uh, reached out and asked me an interesting question, which was, uh, he's getting in into or back into modeling, has an interest in the in the zero, and wanted to know what the best kits were in each of the three. Uh, normal scale, 72nd, 48th, and 32nd. And so we had some interactions back and forth. Ultimately, my conclusion was 72nd scale, there's no question. The Tamiya 72nd scale Zero series is still the finest model kits I've ever built in my life. I've built two of them so far, and I've got a plenty more to build because they are just wonderful kits. 48 scale. I recommended the new Edward 48 scale zero kit. Edward Engineering is fantastic. That kit's getting a lot of praise. But I did say in 48 scale, the old Tamiya zero, which is that kit's, uh, you know, that kit's not a spring chicken. It wasn't done in the last five years. If you can find it, and a lot of times you can, you can find it uh, on a seconds table at a, at a show for you know, just a few bucks, it still builds up to fantastic kit. 32nd scale, there is no question. The Tamiya Zero that was released about 10 years ago in 32nd scale is just one of the finest kits out there. Uh, uh, It's not cheap, but it is super well engineered and can be made up into a beautiful model. So that was my response to him, but I'd I'd be interested to know from the aircraft modelers out there, particularly ones who built the Zero kits, 
would would your advice have been the same as mine? I mentioned on a previous episode that I didn't like to spray pure white or pure black, but particularly pure white, particularly pure gloss white. And one of the modelers reached out, one of the listeners, uh, Lee Edmonds, reached out and commented on something that I completely had not thought of, which is airliner models. In airliner models, you really, because you're going for that stark white that a lot of airline aircraft or the liveries are truly white. So using a gray, like uh, uh, a, a super light gray, just doesn't work. And he said he uses either Tamiya or SMS to uh, to hit it with the base coat as the primer, then a lot of sanding. Then he uses automotive lacquer for the pure white for to get that high-gloss, high-polish airliner finish. And uh, that sounds, sounds right to me, but I... I had not even considered when I was talking about it the thought that yeah airliner airliner guys can't use the trick of not using actual white they really they really in most cases need an actual stark white they got to shine like justice man they shine like justice they want that really really white appearance so you know if there are any other airline model airliner modelers out there listening and you have input on how you do your white. I still think it's one of the most problematic colors to paint. Uh, that yellow and any sort of day glow are just three of the more difficult colors to paint. So anybody out there listening has a, has any tips on those? I'm I'm more than interested. Uh, finally, as I mentioned earlier, Wonderfest was held almost two weeks ago here in Louisville. And uh, uh, it's, it is a fantastic show. Uh, if you have never been to it, you should come. Even if you're, even if sci-fi and figure, you know, fantasy figures and monster figures and stuff like that aren't your particular area of super interest, there's still a lot of really, really great models there. And uh, the vendor room, while more sci-fi focused, you can find a lot of uh, uh, stuff that is the mili- military oriented. So it's a great show. And uh, Canadian Bill Webb reached out to me because he was coming down to the show and wanted to know if we'd be there, which we normally would be. But this year was a little bit uh, unusual for both Mike and I with uh, family duties, but uh, he reached out and I was able to get a steal a couple hours, go to the show for a couple hours, hang out. We got to meet up. Uh, we got to talk and uh, he supplied me with some Canadian beer, uh, which six of those I'm saving for you, Mike. So don't worry. You'll get your, you'll All get right. your half. And I got to say it's, it's so far, it's been really good. Modelers are good guys. I mean, you you meet somebody that has listened to the podcast who who you've only interacted with DMing to to meet up at the show, and there's an immediate rapport. I mean, you're talking about 
uh, we were talking about airbrushing. He had just attended, there's an airbrush seminar uh, at Wonderfest, and he had just attended that. And so we were talking about airbrushing and all of this stuff. And it just, it's a, it's a natural conversation where you're immediately friends just simply because of the nature of the fact that you both speak a very common language. And he was getting, he also is another listener who was getting back into modeling. And I'm telling you, I am amazed at the number, and maybe it was the pandemic, maybe it's the age cohort coming back in or what, but so many of the people we talk to are coming into the hobby for the first time or coming back into the hobby in the last two years. And man, it's, it's, it's nothing but good for the hobby. All right. Is that all you got? Yep. Well, if you'd like to write into the show, we hope you would, uh, you can do so via email to plasticmodelmojo at gmail.com or as Dave's been talking about in his little spiel there from his side of it, Facebook messenger, you can, you can reach out that way and, get here eye and have a little conversation there. It's always fun coming up for a future episode. I've kind of got a call to action. I'd like to hear from a lot of you folks, as many as possible. What kit did you have as a kid or teenager up to teenager? I guess if you modeled as a child or, or before you were an adult that you set with a kit that you had that you in your mind set a higher than normal expectation for. And then when you, executed it either ended in utter disappointment or disaster (laughs) so so tell us your story so let us know about that if you've got something along those lines you'd like to share we'd like to hear it yes we really would uh mike mike and i texted back and forth on this subject and and uh it brought back some some real memory so I'm, i'm interested to hear what the what the listeners have to say on that subject Well, Mike, this is the point in the episode where I ask the listeners, if you wouldn't mind when you're done listening to this, would you please go to whatever podcast app you use and rate the podcast? We'd appreciate it if you'd give it five stars. It helps us grow the podcast. Uh, if you're listening, but you haven't subscribed into in what pot, whatever podcatcher app you use, please go ahead and subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. And finally, if you have a modeling friend out there who isn't listening to the podcast, we'd appreciate it if you would recommend it to them. The podcast continues to grow. We continue to add new listeners, uh, much to both Mike and I's continued amazement. This thing continues to to get bigger and bigger. One of the ways that that happens is if you all will tell your other modeling friends to listen give us a recommendation it's the best way for us to get a new listener you can also take in all the other podcasts out in the model sphere and to do that just go to modelpodcast.com modelpodcast.com is a consortium website put together by Stuart clark of scale model podcast to provide a single repository for all the podcasts out there in the model sphere who have chosen to participate in this with us. You can go to modelpodcast.com and just there's a banner link to each of the other websites you're participating. It's just an easy way to go find all those at once if you're not subscribed to them and uh, figure out what everybody else has got to say. So check it out, modelpodcast.com. In addition to that, there's all sorts of content out there in the model sphere. 
please check out our blog and YouTube friends that we've mentioned before. Special Agent 002, Stephen Lee, Sprue Pie with Frets. Please check out his blog. Dave says he's been white hot lately, and I need to get caught up, I guess. He has. Chris Wallace, Model Airplane Maker, blog and YouTube channel. Always got something good to say and always got a good video. We need to have Chris back on sometime. I'd we like do. To- and needs to get some more T-shirts printed. Yes, he does. We were teasing him about that today. Jeff Groves, the Inch High Guy, all things 72nd scale. Please check out the Inch High Guy blog for your 72nd scale enjoyment. And finally, you're not fired, Jim. Jim Bates, the Scale Canadian TV. Please check out his YouTube channel and send him email imploring him to come to Nationals. Absolutely. Absolutely. He needs to be there. This is going to be a year where there is a gathering uh, that probably isn't going to be repeated uh, anytime soon of all the the podcasters, and we need uh, we need Jim to be our MC like he was out in Las Vegas. That's right. Finally, for those of you who've listen or listening, if you're not a member of your national IPMS organization, please consider joining. That's IPMS USA, IPMS Canada for our guys, for our friends in the Great White North. Uh, IPMS Australia, IPMS New Zealand, IPMS Norway, whatever. Please join your national organization. The national IPMS does a lot to support modeling, and it's really important that you not only join, but join and then get involved. Because the more you get involved, the better off you're going to be, the more you're going to support the hobby, and the more fun you're going to have. You, my interactions with the other modelers that I've met through the national organization is some of the most fun I have. So if you're not yet a member, join and come to the nationals. If you come to IPMS USA nationals, you can, you can register and compete as long as you are a member of any IPMS national organization from any country. Well, Dave, let's take a short break here and have a word from our sponsor. Plastic Model Mojo is now brought to you by Model Paint Solutions, your source for harder Steenbeck airbrushes, David Union power tools, and laboratory-grade mixing, measuring, and storage tools for use with all your model paints, be they acrylic, enamels, or lacquers. Check them out at www.modelpaintsolutions.com. Dave, we're back, and it is Wagon's Hoe for Omaha. We're getting close, Mike. I can, I can feel it. Well, Dave, at the time of this recording, we are 38 days away from the IPMS National Convention in Omaha, Nebraska. Oh, man. No wonder my palms are sweating. Well, I got a nice email from Scott Hackney, the show chairman, this week, and he expects no big surprises at present time. Hopefully, there won't be any big surprises other than more folks than they anticipated showing up. That'd be a, that, that wouldn't be all right. That's always a good surprise. Says everything is on track for a great convention. They've capped 600 pre-registrations. Oh, that's great. Uh, The vendor rooms are full. Vendor rooms, plural. There's two of them. Yep. Uh, Night at the museum, the psych museum. That event is booked solid. You can go to the museum on your own during normal operating hours, but the the night at the museum uh, ropes off tour and dinner is booked solid. I'm looking forward to that. And you can also check out the Speed Museum, too. That, that one also sounds interesting. He says the convention decals are due this week, and they got over 500 T-shirts on order. And he hopes that uh, folks are not deterred by the gas prices. <laughs> well, listen, 
dig deep. If it costs you a few extra bucks to drive there, go ahead and do it. Believe me, you're not going to regret it. Well, then on our side, uh, I got the car rental booked. And uh, hopefully you're still working on this hotel correction. Yes. Yeah. So uh, we've got our hotel booked and we're trying to expand our booking a little bit, but we'll see how that works out. And we've got our shopping list in the works for the Mojo Dojo. Oh, yes. 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 <laughs> Fully stocked, I believe, is the term that's being bandied about. Uh, we'll see. Hope so. <laughs> <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> You and me both. Listen, Vegas is going to be real hard to top. It is going to be very hard to top. Our our hotel room was hopping every night in Vegas. We can be a little more prepared this time, and uh, maybe it'll go better. Not that it not that it went bad, but no, it went great. Always room for improvement. That's right. We're leveling up. Well, that's interesting because that's sort of the theme of our special segment, which we're going to change things around a little bit this episode and uh, put this in right now. So. Our special segment, Dave, is that next level build. Dude, I leveled up. <laughs> next level build it kind of stems from, uh, well, Chris Wallace, a model airplane maker, a while back, uh, had a blog post kind of titled that. And he was looking at, uh, you know, showing off some of these other models some other people built, had built that were, you know, in a lot of ways over the top, some of them. Sure. And then he was kind of pondering how he might move the needle on his own skills and uh, take on something with a little bit more meat to it. And then also in a recent plastic posse podcast, Scott and his crew talked about, you know, their level up build something, a project they had where they, they kind of move the needle on uh, their expertise, something they could carry forward, you know, into most of their next projects. And we touched on it once before in the past too, I believe. Yeah, I think we 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 tangentially discussed the what's, subject. Yeah, well, we do that often with what's your plan yeah. for getting better. But uh, what do you think, man? What do you think? Uh, just kind of the, the front end of this, without getting too far into the weeds just yet, uh, about next level builds. I think it's it's in general good for your. And I have some observations, but I in general I think it's good for your your hobby to occasionally just decide that you are going to do something way over the top. Now you're, you're not always going to succeed, but, but you, you know, that old saying, a man, a man's reach must exceed his grasp or else what are dreams for, you know, doing that next level build, imagining that, okay, I'm going to do this. Yeah. It sounds kind of crazy. I'm going to, I'm going to, do a one or more things I've never done before. And I I think that really does stimulate your modeling. You may not always accomplish it, but even the simple attempt at doing it, I think provides benefit for your your day-to-day modeling. Oh, I think so too. And you know, by next level build, we just mean something above and beyond your comfort zone with your current skill set. I think would be a kind of a, a, a general way to put that. Yeah. And, you know, we, we talk about what's your plan for getting better. And I, I think one advantage to doing this sort of thing, taking a project that's out of your comfort zone, particularly w- with your skill set. I mean, you can, you can go outside your genre and, and probably do okay. And in, in most of them with your current skill set, at least to that, level of satisfaction you have with what you're doing in your, in your primary genre already. 
mm-hmm. you're going to learn something new. But uh, the big advantage I think is is when you when you bite that off, especially if you have a reasonable level of success with it, is that it it makes the next bite a whole lot easier to take. Yep, success builds upon success, really. I've noticed something, and maybe you've noticed it too. Have you ever seen a younger modeler, back, you know, just into the hobby or just back into the hobby who takes on a project that you're like, oh my God, I, you know, that, that just wildly, wildly out of, uh, out of the ordinary or out of reach. And, and one of the reasons they manage to accomplish it is because they don't know they're not supposed to be. They're not supposed to be able to that, <laughs> yeah. that, you know, it's like, I want this, so I'm going to do this. And if it involves all this new stuff, I'm just going to reach out and, and do it. And I'm constantly amazed by younger modelers who just have no fear because they don't know how, how big a, a, a bite of the apple they're taking. And so there's there's not that fear that 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 a more experienced modeler looks at that same project and goes, yeah, I'd like to do that, but that man, there's just so much involved in that. And I don't think I'm up to that. Oh, I don't, not sure I could pull that off. I'll wait till I'm better. Yeah, I'll wait till I'm better. And you know what? <laughs> You'll be in your coffin saying, "I'll wait till I'm better." Don't wait till you're better. Do it now. We've all got projects that uh, kind of fall into this category of uh, either trying to make yourself better or, or 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 a project. You may not have intended it to be this level up kind of thing, right? Right. It may just end it up there because you had to do something different to, to pull something off. Have you got any examples? I can think of a couple. The first one, and and this goes back to he wasn't, he was too young and stupid to know he wasn't supposed to be able to do this or that he shouldn't try to do this. Now, I know none of the listeners here can imagine, but I take you back to the early 80s. And in the early 80s, there were not, there was not, believe it or not, a kit, a, a mainstream manufactured kit of the McDonnell Douglas F4 C slash D Phantom, the Air Force version of the Phantom from Vietnam. Nobody made a kit of this thing. Well, I wanted to do uh, uh, Richie and De- De Bellevue's Triple Nickel, the MIG killer, the one that, that had the five five stars on the splitter plate. Believe it or not, there was there were decals available for it, but there was no kit of it. So you had to uh, bash your own kit. And, uh, you know, uh, I was fairly fresh back into modeling. I wanted to do this model. There was no current kit of it. And so instead of saying, well, you know, I'll just wait for somebody to do, it's like, no, heck, I'll just kit bash it. So I took an Etolary RF, it's an RF4C or an RF4E, I forget which. And the Airfix F4B, which donated the nose to the to the kit, and I kit bashed it together along with some sheet styrene, a lot of putty, a lot of sanding, to make 
the F4D uh, that I wanted for with the Vietnam markings. It came out pretty good. And all of you listeners now have me to thank because immediately upon completing that kit, Hasegawa, Fujimi, and everybody announced an entirely <laughs> new F4 series, including all of the F4 Cs and Ds. So you all have me personally to thank for the fact that there are kits of those aircraft now. If I was faced with that today, having been built models for 30 plus years, I am pretty sure I would say, you know what, that project's too now, I'm not going to do that. There's plenty of other stuff I want to build. Hmm. But there's a virtue to not not being smart enough or not being afraid enough to just go ahead and do it. And I ended up with an aircraft, in my case, that I wanted. And I learned a lot while doing it, too. So do you have one that comes to mind for you? I know one. I know one of yours. We'll go back before that one, though. Um, oh, okay. When I was a teenager and in, in the first IPMS club I was ever in, and kind of after you've had your aha moment and you decided to get serious about this, which I think is the topic of a recent Model Geeks episode. Maybe yeah. They're, maybe their last one. I, I'm, a, I'm a couple behind, but <laughs> um, I, I need to listen to that because I'm sure I could relate to it. Anyway, I, when I got to that aha point, I was trying to be, quote, unquote serious about this i built a tiger one e the late one the steel wheel one with the uh with the cupola on it with the periscopes and the anti-aircraft ring right yeah and the the, the recipe back then i mean now that you, you got your pick of kits but, but yep. back in the 80s it was uh you had to take the the tamiya early tiger one and you had to bash it with uh the Nik- Nikimo or Nichimo late version. Yeah. You had to remount all the wheels and, and modify the turret and use their Coppola. And this is quite a bit to it. I still have this model. In fact, it's the one I posted on our Facebook page a year or so ago with a chicken running out in front of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was kind of my first foray into to kit bash and modification. And I learned a lot. I learned what not having the right tool for the job can <laughs> how that can de- derail you sometimes. Uh, oh yeah. Uh, I learned, uh, it takes a lot of work to get road wheels straight sometimes <laughs> when you're cutting off torsion bar arms and drilling holes and trying to mount something that wasn't supposed to be there on there and, and on and on and on. Cause I really tried to detail it up and now I look at it and it's, man, it's pretty rough in retrospect. I thought it was golden back then, but, uh, sure. uh, it's, uh, it was an interesting journey to get that one done. I put Zimmerd on it for the first time using Squadron Green Putty. Oh man! And uh, you know, well, I was happy with it. What's okay? Why did you decide you wanted to do that with my F four build? I wanted that Richie and De Bellevue Mig Killer, and that was the only way I was going to get it. What? What was it that that? inspired you enough to say, okay, I'm going to take these kits and I'm going to do all of this. Was there a particular, uh, well, well, there was, there was a, um, a particular profile or a piece of artwork in the Osprey book on the tiger tank uh-huh. that I wanted to do. Cause I liked the look of it. It was Normandy campaign. I just had more interest at that time in those later ones. 
And, and then there was a an article in one of the magazines at that time that kind of kind of uh, got into that conversion. And then I think even see at, at that time Verlinden was just coming on the scene. Yeah. Well, he had been on the modeling scene, but as far as a manufacturer, right? As a player in the, in the industry, right? And uh, he he came out with a little green covered book. Is the on target series? I think they were called. I remember. Like I remember them. I actually own a couple. And then there's one on the tiger tanks, and that that conversion's in there. So I, I was looking at that. I think, and it's like, yeah, I think I can do that. So I did it. And now, did you vary from what was in his book? Did you along the way decide, well, I'm there's something I want to change, or there's something I want to add, or did you just straight follow his guidance? Uh, for the kit parts pretty much followed his guidance, but uh, to get the Zimmerit, he, he'd use that that hot tool, pyrogravure. Yeah, and you know, back at that time, and not too long after, everybody's ch- trying to chase those things and do it like he was doing it. But I fell back on the green putty and the and the uh, HO scale corrugated roof tin right. technique that was outlined in the Shep Payne books. That's yeah. what I that's what I did. Uh, so in that in that regard, I I did, but I fell onto somebody else's instructions or guidance. You yeah, know, I, I pretty much followed it, and a lot of my detailing was different because I didn't understand or have access to some of the stuff they were using. So I just kind of made mine up as I went along. Well, you got, no, uh, you got you got another one? Yes, I do. The Dragon Mig Seventeen for. For the longest time, the the only game in town for MiG-17 was the Hasegawa MiG-17PF, where if you wanted to convert it to a MiG-17C, uh, you had to take the, the PF. You, it was oversized. You had to cut down the wings. You had to add new wing fences. You actually had to cut down the canopy. You had to get a aftermarket splitter plate that didn't have the lip for the radar. And so when Dragon came out with their MiG-17, it was a, with it, that kit has its flaws, but it was a huge step forward. Well, I wanted to do, you know, I love the MiG-17, one of my more, one of my favorite aircraft. So I wanted to do it obviously when it came out and I wanted to do what what was at the time a big big craze was salt chipping, which really people don't do much anymore, and with good reason, because uh, now with chipping fluids and all, there's a lot lot better ways to do it. But uh, I hadn't done it before, so I decided I was going to do a heavily chipped MiG seventeen from the from Nigeria during the Biafran conflict. And went ahead, did it. And the underlying challenge, of course, is you have to put bare metal down first in order to be able to chip it away to reveal the bare metal. Uh, That's where I came along and first learned that if you take an aircraft that you're going to put in bare metal and prime it, quote unquote, prime it with future, because future is self-leveling, and seeps into sanding cracks and scratches, uh, it can give you a beautiful finish if you put Alclad over an 
a model that's been primed in clear future. And that worked out beautifully. And in retrospect, frankly, I wished I would have left the model in bare metal because it was one of the one of the uh, better bare metal finishes that I've ever had. But because I wanted to do this salt chipping thing, I laid the salt down and then sprayed over with a uh, medium green and then chipped the salt away to reveal the uh, the bare metal underneath. The technique worked out somewhat. It was not as good as I would have wanted it, but. At the end, when I got to the end, I had an aircraft that I wanted. The technique of salt chipping, while again quickly got surpassed by, uh, you know, the hairspray technique and stuff like that. It was it was beyond my cert- my current set of skills, but I really, really felt like I had done a couple of things that I had never done before. And frankly, it gave me a lot of confidence, particularly because the bare metal part came out so well, gave me the confidence to um, to build more bare metal aircraft, which I'm even now continuing on. Well, we've talked about my big one on here several times. and I, We can't have a, a segment like this without mentioning it, but it was that SU-76 I built. Yep. And... By the time I started that project, I had a fairly significant Sturmgeschütz conversion under my belt that had been built partially using a few pieces from a Schmidt vacuform kit. So I'm really dating myself now. <laughs> yeah. And then I'd also built, a, a, to me, a KV-1 with a lot of detailing it. That that model's got completely scratch-built fenders on it. Some of those skills had gotten honed pretty well. And, and this SU-76, though... This is the first time I really scratch built that much of a model. I was going to say, there's not much of the kit in, in that model. Yes, yeah, the lower hull and the wheels, the road speaking, wheels. Speaking of which, before you go into detail on it, again, let me go back to the same question on the Tiger and then my F4. What was the inspiration? Why an SU-76? What What was it about that that said, yes, there's nothing good out there, but you still want to do it. Well, I was investigating that project before there was ever a kid at all. And there was a, I can't remember who did it, but somebody did a spread. You remember when fine scale used to have the, the technical spreads in the middle? Yes. They'd take a subject and they'd have, you know, a handful of photographs, the technical stats, and then line drawings. Right. That. And then all the Zaloga books, you know, it was, it was the second most produced Soviet vehicle next to T-34. Right. So there's a lot of them. It seemed like a big hole. And it, that was just kind of the way my interests were going. And I was looking at, you know, doing the whole thing. And then Alan came out with this kit. And, you know, it's, it wasn't great. It was really thick and heavy. It went together kind of clunky. But like the road wheels and stuff were my mindset at the time was, you know, salvaged from this kit or that kit. Well, the, the closest looking thing to a T60, T70, SU76 kind of road wheel at the time was like the wheels off a Tamiya Panzer II. And I was trying to figure out how to make all that work. And in all my engineering planning, this kit was released. Like, okay, well, that 
how far does that get me? So I, I bought that kit at the, I think I bought that at the national convention in 1992 in Atlanta, Georgia. I remember that one. And I worked on it a long time, but I, I the thing in that build that shaped me as a modeler the most was drawing from a lot of sources and, and only taking the best cherry picking without, I mean, just really reckless abandon, just not worrying if I used 25% of a photo etch set, not worrying about only using 30% of a plastic kit. Just didn't care. I, I, that, that, that model made me, it made me take the kind of the, the project, you know, I'm not building, I'm building a model of this vehicle. I'm not building a kit of this vehicle. Yeah. If that, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, that is your style now. And, and yeah, it is. That's kind of my style now. And it's, it's, and with some projects, it's, it's more than others. Right. I mean, I right. don't, I don't I have any problem building a good kit with a minimal amount of change to it. If it needs any at all, I, I really don't. But that one was kind of the, the epitome of building the subject, but not building the kit. And that, yeah, that, that's a good way to put it. It kind of, it kind of honed my style, the kind of projects I like to do. And the, the a, a kit and an item of aftermarket, whatever, they're all means to an end that, you know, they're all going to contribute something less than a hundred percent in their own, in their own regard. Now, now, for for listeners who who don't remember this back in this time the soviet union was just in the process of falling so you know it wasn't like reference on a sherman where there's crap loads of reference oh yeah this is true and and not only that but some of the reference was conflicting how did you suss out what what bits of reference to grab from what reference pieces when you when you're presented with two conflicting pieces of information about let's just say the the shell rack in the interior of the su-76 how if you're presented with two conflicting pieces of information about it how did you make a determination okay this is right or this is wrong or they're both wrong or they're both half right. How did you, how did you dig that out? Well, I guess the biggest thing to figure out was, you know, they built that vehicle after the war and they changed it a little bit, but not much. So there, there wasn't a whole lot to, to, to weed out. The, the problem is that model was built before the internet. Yeah. So everything, everything I used for reference that didn't come out of that old fine scale article was a picture here or two there from, you know, a pretty big stack of other books. Yeah. And there's a post-war vehicle at Aberdeen Proving Grounds. Well, there yeah. was. Yeah. <laughs> a long time ago. Yeah. It's now down in Georgia, I think. Or it's, or it's returned to the earth. I don't know. <laughs> no, I, th- I think it got shipped down. So it's, I don't think, I don't think that project was as bad as you might imagine. It was just mostly lack of information and trying to piece it together from, from really a bunch of books that by today's standards, aren't that good anyway. Yeah. I mean, cause they were old, I, you know, like you said, the, the Soviet union was just in the throes of imploding at that point. Well, they're dealing with a the fallout of imploding, I guess by 92, 93. Right. 
so there, there wasn't the, that Allen, Allen was kind of the first new manufacturer to come out of the former Soviet Union, yeah. at least in, in armor anyway. And that was their first kit. So you can imagine. Yeah. But, you know, a lot of these are logo titles. There's a few pictures here, a few pictures there. And then I took a bunch at Aberdeen one time. Some of the biggest conflicts was the, some of the aftermarket was just crap. I mean, like there was an Edward Photoet set from the early Edward stuff. And basically like the ammo racks, they were just made photo etch versions of the incorrect ones in the kit. So what's that yeah. worth? Right. <laughs> right. And you know, that happened. I don't think it happens as much nowadays, No, it but doesn't. in the, in the early days of aftermarket, I don't think people realize how much aftermarket folks just took the kit part and cast it or did photo etch of it or whatever medium they were working in and put it on the market without at that point there was no thought oh well let me or i won't say no thought because there were plenty of cottage aftermarket manufacturers who who did put a lot into it but there were plenty of them who just cloned the kit part without ever saying okay how am i going to improve this or how am i going to accurize it well, and those ammo racks in the SU-76 are, are a good example of cherry-picking stuff. The, the kit ammo racks were unusable, unless you really just didn't care. Uh, the Edward racks, the, the bodies of the racks were photo etched versions of the kit racks, so they were equally inaccurate. But the clips for the rounds in the racks out of the Edward set were usable. Now... Folks may remember some of the old timers out there, the old Commander Series resin stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty rough stuff. Yeah. Um, well, they had an SU-76 update set for for that kit. And it had a photo etch Fred in it. Now, the racks in that kit were trying to be the right shape, but they were so poorly etched, the the fold lines weren't there and you just, there was no way to get them formed up correctly because you're trying to fold the full thickness of the metal and, and parts of the places. And they're, they're really garbage. Uh, so I didn't use much out of that kit. I scratch built the, the ammo racks out of plastic and used the Edward clips for the rounds. And then I'm working on something for the ZIS two base. We'll get into later, but there's a technique I use and I showed it on the Facebook page where I, a coil plastic strip around like a brass rod and then dunk it in boiling water. Yeah. And thermoform that into rings. And you can cut, you can, you can cut it and make uniform rings out of it. Well, yep. the SU-76, there's seats in the bottom of the ammo rack for the bottom of the shell casing. And that's how I made those first time I'd ever done that. So now I'm, now here I am decade and change later using it again on, on something else. So that was a technique I learned there. So, you know, new technique using the best parts that were out there for what I was trying to do and just coming up with what I wanted. So that was the kind of the, the next level or the level up there, kind of setting that mentality for my modeling going forward. What are your future Magnum op? What's the plural of opus? Opi? <laughs> do I have a Magnum opus or a, a new next level build? Yes. On the One that, well, well, I know we've talked about the, the Reba Botan and we know that, that that's just, a long-term, you know, 
basically from scratch build. So that's got to qualify as one of those magnum opus or next level builds. Sure. But beyond that, do you have another one that you are contemplating as just, I'm going to, to reach well beyond my grasp? Well, well the, the Botan for sure. When I, when I get this Zist done, I start something next. Either, either the Katusha or the KV-85 are going to be along a similar vein as the SU-76. Now, there won't be as much scratch building, obviously, because there's a lot more to draw from. But uh, both of those are picking and choosing from a, a host of kits and aftermarkets. So I've already got all that accumulated. So on the scratch side of things, I'll mention it again later, but uh, as soon as I get my hands on one of those Sharnhorse turrets and figure out how I'm going to do the catapult for that thing, that's that's going to be... That's going to be a next level or a level up there too. Oh, absolutely. And the more aircraft I keep building, those are all level ups. <laughs> yes. And the, then, then you're one day going to go all crazy on an aircraft like you did on the SU-76. And I'm, I'm there for it. I can't wait for that. Yeah, maybe. I, I'll have one that comes to mind every now and then, but right now I, I can't think of one in particular. But uh, yeah, I want to really go the extra mile on a 72nd scale plane at some point. Hopefully not too far out. Kingfisher. Kingfisher, maybe. You got one? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I've got a couple. Number one is, uh, you know, we talked with Steve Hustad. I I really admire his work. And one of the reasons I admire it is because he pulls off 72nd scale aircraft dioramas. One of the things I have always wanted to do is a 72nd scale aircraft diorama that doesn't look like a toy. It looks like it it looks like a diorama and just like what he does. And so somewhere in the future, I am not sure exactly where, I'm not sure exactly what how the subject is going to look. Uh I've got my eye on there's a uh uh, D, a f- couple of photographs of a DO-17 uh, from the Battle of Britain that ended up crashing into a uh, railroad cut, um, you know, two sets of tracks, and there's a, a sloped sides where the uh, up to the level of the ground, and the aircraft crashed and slid along, and then right as it came to rest, it came to rest inside the railroad cut across the tracks. And it's very well documented. There are a number of photographs of it. And I've, I've always wanted to do that. And uh, so I eventually want to do a, uh, an aircraft diorama in the, in the style of Steve Hustad with my limited modeling skills. Another one that I would like to do, is, and I've had this idea for a long time, I would like to do a, uh, basically a German dock scene with a take, a, take one of the uh, Revell uh, Type 7 or Type 9 U-boats cut it at the waterline, put it in a scene up next to a key uh, where you might also have a S-boat 
and maybe a flying boat tied up to a pier side. And I'm talking about something that would probably be fairly large, like three and a half feet by three and a half feet. So, you know, this is one of those, I I dream about it. I think about it. I pick up kits here and there that I can use for the idea, but it's nothing more right now in my mind than something I turn over in my imagination. <laughs> but but one day I would actually like to do that. All right. Well, I guess I don't have any more. I would just challenge folks to expand their horizons and, yep. and, and try something new and try to level up. So practice and challenging yourself is really the only way to get there. Yep. And, and email us or DM us and tell us what is your dream build or magnum opus build or the thing that you think about doing that you haven't done yet build because i'd kind of like to hear what everybody else's is all right dave well it's time for the benchtop halftime report sponsored by tackett z tackett z the must-have tools for the model maker you can check out what ed's ed's got going on at www.tackettz.com and again i've been using those alligator clips like a fiend lately oh me too (laughs) me too they are they are wonderful simple stuff yep well, Dave, when you're not in the pool, you got to be building, I guess. So what's on your bench? Well, uh, what's, what's quote unquote rocketed off my bench was uh, the Bronco DF-1, the Dongfang-1, which was the communist Chinese first ballistic missile, uh, which was simply a copy of the Russian SS-2 sibling. Uh, short-range ballistic missile, which was simply an expanded version or lengthened uh, version of German V2. We picked up our German scientists, they picked up their German scientists, and we both got a rocket program out of them. Um, This kit is a kit that I started three and a half weeks ago because I needed something to build at our club's Friday night fight quarterly build meeting where we all sit around for four or five hours on a Thursday evening. And instead of having a regular meeting, we sit around with building mats and lights and work together on something so everybody can see what else everybody's working on. You can walk around. Uh, There's the the real advantage of that is that you can watch other people you can share techniques in real time uh building with other people is a great way to learn modeling um but since i didn't have anything that i was currently working on that i could really transport uh i pulled this kit out of the stack cuz i want to eventually build all of the Soviet slash Russian ballistic missiles. So I pulled this kit out and uh, it's a really nice kit. It's relatively simple to build. And once I started it on at the Friday night fight, it just uh, took off to the point where when you and I are done recording this, it's probably, I'm going to, it's going to get its final post decal gloss coat, a very light wash and then uh, a final satin coat, and this sucker's going to be done. So it'll be done 
probably by the time everybody hears this episode, which will put me two in for the year, followed very quickly by the 144 scale B-52, uh, which is in war paint. It just needs decals and, and the finishing touches. So I am going to, by the time we leave for Omaha, I'm going to have both the SS2 and the B-52 that I'm going to take to Omaha. I may take something else as well, but I'll have at least two of kits that I've built in this calendar year to take to Omaha. How about you? Well, John Bonanno will be happy that this two base is picking up steam. <laughs> yes, he's he's starting to grow impatient. Well, most of the details are now painted up, and most of them are attached to the base. I've got to get the final weathering on the gun finished, which that's going to be a little bit of an unanticipated challenge. We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, man, I've been almost undone by a pair of uh, 135th scale Mosin Nagant rifles. Well, I lo- th- those looked beautiful. I mean, well, they really, the pictures you, you were texting me, they really looked like they were coming out nice. Well, almost undone. <laughs> I've prevailed, I think, once I get them painted. They're, they're the only things well, that haven't, haven't been painted yet. What is the challenge with them, or what was the challenge? Uh, well, I'm building this thing as like it was photographed, abandoned after the battle had moved on somewhere else, right? And then the crew right. had abandoned the gun. Yeah. So I've got some abandoned equipment and I wanted a pair of rifles, but to kind of make them look like things got my little dodgy right there in the, in the, in the emplacement. Yeah. I wanted to have one of the rifles with the bayonet attached to it still. Mm-hmm. And the mini art. Well, let me back up. I looked at all the most in the gun rifles I had, you know, I've got the mini art small arms kit. I've got, uh, some master box sets that have most of the got rifles in them. And I've got a Tamiya or not to me. I've got a dragon gen two set of a uh, Soviet infantryman that has some in it as well. Well, of all of those, the, the master box ones have the bayonets already molded on them, but the, the details clunky and it wasn't a rifle. I wanted to use the dragon ones are the worst of all. They've got, in that Gen 2 set, they've got a lot of detail on them, but they're not shape right. They, they Imagine if you cut a rifle stock out of a, a 2 by 8 and didn't round any of the edges off. It's just a plank shaped like a oh. rifle, right? That's what they look like to my eyes. The mini R ones are absolutely beautiful. But to put the bayonets on them, which are separate pieces, you have to cut most of the muzzle off of it and leave just a little bit left for a little nub there. And the thing is... The socket of the bayonet is supposed to fit over that nub and it replaces the front sight as you do that because you cut all that off. Um, right. But it won't fit. It won't fit because the hole in the back of the bayonet is too small for the muzzle that's left on the rifle. I mean, you can enlarge that, I guess, but this thing's tiny, right? I mean, it's just yeah. not much there to work with. And the socket on the bayonets, the diameter is too big and it, it hits the cleaning rod under the barrel. So I ruined one trying to do that. And then all of the bayonets in the set are fouled by a knit line. Do you know what a knit line is, Dave? A knit line. Yes, K-N-I-T, knit line. No. A knit line is an injection mold phenomenon. 
where you have two flows of resin coming together in the cavity from you different- mean plastic plastic you well know, plastic is resin okay it's industry talk dave i know i know so you have two flow fronts of plastic coming at each other head on gotcha so, so imagine a, a park that's fed by two gates along the sides and that that material comes into the to the cavity and hits the opposite wall of the cavity and it turns left and right. Yeah. So on the right side, it's coming from the, it's moving left and on the left side, it's moving right and, and it's filling that mold cavity. And that does those two plastic, those two plastic flows come together somewhere in the middle between the two gates. Well, if the plastic's not the right temperature, or the injection pressure is not right. Like a whole host of other nuanced things I don't understand fully. Uh, those things, those two flow fronts won't meld together properly. So sometimes it's called a weld line as well. Gotcha. And if everything's right, that plastic will flow together and intermix and there won't be anything there. It'll just be plastic. Right. But if things aren't right, those two flow fronts will touch each other and they'll stick, but they won't flow together. So you get a line. You you get a line. Best case is like you would get a, well, best case would be a, a knit line in, in a non-functional, non-visible area and you wouldn't give her a rip about it. On a cosmetic part, you'll see a line like swooping through the cover of a TV or a printer or something. Right. Uh, mechanically, it's a weak point and it'll break there. And every one of these bayonets had a knit line right in the middle. And by the time I broke the third one, I was like, okay, well, they're not going to have bayonets on them anymore. <laughs> <laughs> by the way, that is, for all the listeners, that's an that's actually a good lesson to learn. At some point, it's okay to say, you know what, I'm going to change the plan because this ain't working or this is too frustrating or if I keep this up... I'm not ever going to finish this. Right. Uh, you know, sometimes it's okay to call an audible. And then I've been working on the rifle slings. That's the other slow boat. But, uh, you know, I've, I've mentioned before on this podcast, those Soviet slings are not like most others. And they give a real characteristic look to the rifle. So I've been trying to replicate those as best I can. So the main part of the sling I've, I've made out of paper with a photo etched buckle. And then uh, the little dog dog collar attachments to the rifle I've, I've made out of 5,000 styrene so I can actually glue them to the gun. Yeah. And, uh, first one came out great and I got to get the second one built. And once I get those painted, ah, the finish line's in sight. I'm going to add all the details and the gun. Once it's final weathering's done to the base, everything, but the spent shells and the live ammo. Cause I'm, I'm going to have to touch up with a flat coat on in some areas. And then sure. Once that's done, add the ammos and the empties, and it's it's done. So I, I'm real close, and I've put a lot of work in over the last week since now that uh, all the graduation stuff settled down. So it's a uh, it's gonna be, it's gonna get done. Well, it sounds like you're making progress, and I know from the pictures I've seen, you have been. Oh yeah, I got the you know the gas mask and bag got done and painted. I really like the way that came out. So yep, keep forging ahead, man. I'll get there. You will get there. We'll both get there by Omaha. That's right. It'll be done for Omaha. I'll, I'll, yeah. It's going to be there. Instead of, of talking about what has broken our wallet, 
considering that we're coming up on the nationals, and if you're anything like me, you kind of cut back on your current your current modeling spending, kind of trying to trying to bankroll for the spending you're going to do at the world's largest traveling hobby shop, aka the national. So instead of what broke your wallet, why don't we talk about what's going to break your wallet? What are you <laughs> planning on? buying at the nationals do you have a list or you know i know different people do this differently do you actually have a list of what you're what you're planning to try and acquire yeah i do with with the caveat of if none of this is there i'm i surely won't come home empty-handed anyway (laughs) true enough i've yet to come home from a nationals empty-handed Except in except in the awards department. Yeah, all the stuff you didn't know you needed. Exactly. Well, if you've got a list, we can do the back and forth, my friend. I've got a list of a few things, but uh, I was going to say up front, while I usually do have a list of some stuff that I'm looking for, what amazes me is that most of the stuff that I come back from the Nationals with it's stuff I didn't know I needed. <laughs> I'll go there, and that is the advantage. You know, with the internet, you you can find anything these days, etc. But there's something about being in a room with a couple of hundred vendors and going from table to table and seeing things and going, man, I didn't know that was out there. Or, oh, so that's what that's like. And you look at it and you decide, oh, yeah, I need that. So a lot of times I come home from the Nationals with a lot of stuff I truly needed, but I had no clue I needed when I went to the Nationals. Well, I'll start with my first one. All right. Um, I'm hoping that that TACOM Sharnhorse B turret and 72nd scale will be on somebody's table by the time the Nats rolls around. The Chinese sellers are starting to show them on eBay now, so... I gotta, I gotta think, maybe. So this, this will get. The plan is to. The reason I want this is to actually create the the aft turret with it, right? And uh, the R Auto one ninety six and catapult on the aft turret is a project I want to do. So collecting stuff for that. I've even got the model collect turret, but if I can find this one, that one will go back on eBay probably. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. What you got first? Well, uh, first and foremost is the DOSWorks U9, which, uh, you know, when the kit was announced, I was gaga for. Um, I, I, uh, I have uh, seen a numerous video, build videos of it. I'm still wildly interested, but our local shop never got the kit in and, um, Buying something that big and having it shipped and all is is kind of a pain in the butt. So I am hoping that one or more vendors at uh, uh, at, uh, at Omaha will actually have it. There was a vendor who had it in Las Vegas, and I would but would have bought it, but there was just no way I could figure out to get the thing home on the airplane uh, without buying it a seat. So I didn't. Uh, ultimately passed up on it. But uh, since we're driving to Omaha, that sucker will fit in the rental vehicle. So I'm, I'm looking for the U nine and I'm, I'm hoping I'm going to acquire one. Well, my next one is uh, 
either fine molds F4D or E Phantom, U.S. Air Force, the Vietnam birds. Yep. It's got to be the best kit out there at present. Yep. Uh, and you big, have me to you have me to thank by all those years ago building that that right. kit bash. Well, this is like round two of Phantom kits, right? Oh, this is like round three. You know, it's a big plane. It's it's still a nice size model in this in that scale. Yes, it is. And it, it kind of harkens back to my nostalgic memory of my Ravel F4E and the old Lightning Storm box. Oh God, I remember that one that I built as a kid on my grandparents kitchen table so yeah <laughs> yeah i actually bought yeah. one of those again and, and had it had at it and it's like ah, oh, this is terrible <laughs> yeah, you, yeah no, no need to put yourself through that you got another one uh yeah although i've i've got to say you just made me it reminded me that i need to pick up a fine molds cd phantom because uh, i want to do the michigan air national guard markings and they do that kit with those markings included. So uh, you added to my list. Thank you very much. But my next one, my next one is the, uh, thank you. This one's actually courtesy of Jim Bates, uh, the Vargas TB2. Uh, Vargas is the resin 3D printed manufacturer uh, of all those uh World War One pieces and between the war tanks and and stuff like that that they're doing is three D printed items. Well, they just announced the uh, TB two drone, the the Bakhtiar drone that's being used a lot in the Ukraine. And since I'm hoping the kit's going to be out by the by the time of the convention, and if so, I, that's on my list to uh, to pick up. Well, this one's kind of general. John Voitek, Unique Master Models, UMM, yes. USA. UMM. Yeah. Uh, subscribers, a punch set, assembly jig, something. He hasn't done a show in our region in a long time. He's not been at anything we've been at. Yeah, that's true. Since Indy 2020. It's the yeah. last time we saw him. Right before the pandemic. That's right. Uh, and if the vendor room layout holds, he's got a lot of tables. Yes. His, he's got lots of great stuff. I think he looks like he's bringing everything, but the kitchen sink. I mean, because he also tools is one thing. He's also got, you know, some obscure kit lines. Yes. From Eastern Europe and places that uh, is kind of cool. So I don't know. I got a feeling it's, it's hard to get on his site sometimes unless you know exactly what you want to pick some of that stuff. He's he's got he didn't have like even one series of punch and die sets. He's got two, three, or four. Yes. And it's it's really nice to be able to look at it and hold it and and pick and choose. So I look well, forward to, to getting over to his tables, plural, and uh see if I can't find me something cool. Well, it's funny that you mentioned those scribers because I'm sitting here you know, recording in my model room, I look down. I've got all three versions of his of his scribers: uh, UMM SCR 01, 02, and 03. And I use them all, uh, so I I highly recommend those. So yeah, and he has lots of great tools that you it, you're right. It really you need to sit and look at them and and examine 
what he's got before you decide, oh, I, yeah, this would be useful to me or this would be useful to me. So I can, I mean, rarely is he present at a model show where I don't spend some money with him. Well, get ready. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know <laughs> I'm buckled down already. You got a final one? Yeah, I got a final one. And um, this is, again, related kind of to Ukraine. Uh, I'd like to pick up a uh, a kit of the Zvezda, uh, the Zvezda kit of the KA-52, the uh, helicopter that's being used over by the Russians and getting shot down by the Ukrainians. And there's a lot of neat photos of markings and, and there's diorama possibilities with several of them that have been shot down and crashed or crashed landed. Um I've I've looked at these things on eBay and frankly uh you know in fact I even ordered one but it turned out the guy didn't have it by the time I ordered it with with Vesta stuff uh finding finding it with a retailer right now is kind of hard so I am hoping with all of the folks vending that are especially the ones who are vending secondhand items that I'm going to be able to find and pick up a KA-52. Well, I got a couple here left. One of them is a... Well, that was my last one, so you go ahead. If the aforementioned is a bust, and somebody has that 4A model snowboat in 72nd scale... Yeah, that's another one that I need to add to my list, because I've looked at it on eBay, um, and I'm hoping that I can pick it up a little cheaper at the show. Yeah, you know, it was announced at Vegas by the distributor. Now there's a lot of info out there online. It looks Superman. and Oh, it does. It looks fantastic. Now these 72nd scale patrol boats, it's either shaping up for a stash collection or a future rabbit hole for me. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I hear they're, you. They're cool. It's, it's a good scale for that size of boat, I think. Yeah. And finally, either 72nd scale or 76th scale, I want to pick up some piece of nostalgia, I think. Airfix or another airfix or possibly even a matchbox of some type. Oh my. To uh to to dabble with uh, a little nostalgia build. Uh, that that will be interesting. I'll you know, I'm I'm constantly admonishing Jim uh because he he sees these kits, these old airfix and, and uh, matchbox kits, and I think they remind him of his modeling childhood, and so he picks them up and then you know, they're they're much better kits of the same thing out there. So there are, yes. Yeah. So he doesn't build them. And I'm like, why are you doing this to yourself? Or he'll start <laughs> them and not finish them because he realizes what a crappy kit they are. But um I'll be interested to see what you locate and pick out in that category because there's some some real interesting offerings out there. There there are, yes. So I can't wait. That ought to be that ought to be real interesting. So uh we're getting toward the end of the episode, Mike. Um how's your modeling fluid? Ah, uh, well the second one's gone. So pretty good. You're re- you're revealing our secrets that it sometimes takes two two modeling fluids to get through an episode. Sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. Uh you know, this is a solid IPA. It's pretty yeah. hoppy, I think. But it's, it is. Uh, and it's hazy. They don't. Yeah, they're not lying. lying. That it's it's a uh, completely unfiltered. Unfiltered, yeah. 
and there's a few floaties in there every now and then too. So oh yeah, it's it's got a lot of flavor. It is not my favorite Three Floyds product, but it is certainly one that I would not turn down. I mean, it is very very drinkable in my opinion. And I really like these IPAs pretty cold. So yes, that's my yep. opinion. What about yours, man? Well, you know, again, the Canadians know their beer. This Sleeman, it was extremely drinkable. It's clearly better than a mass market USA beer. You know, it's better than your your standard Coors, Bud, et cetera, et cetera. It's, say it's comparable to any, any craft brew lager or ale type. Um, it, I got news for you. I'm going to enjoy the rest of them. And uh, if you don't get down here to pick up your six, they might get drunk. So <laughs> you, you, need, you need to get down here to the pool sometime. No, keep that in mind. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, Mike, uh, you got any shout outs? I've got a couple. The first one is our, our normal one. I'd like to shout out those who have chosen to support Plastic Model Mojo financially uh, since the last episode, this is Mr. Alex Taylor and Christopher Church. Thank you, guys. And if folks out there feel moved to do the same as they have, you can do so one of two ways. You can go to www.patreon.com slash Plastic Model Mojo. At Patreon, you can manage a recurring contribution from amount of $1 on up to whatever you choose. And uh, their system will draw that from your payment source every month and uh, keep the recurring contribution going. If you want to make a one-time contribution or manage your own recurring contribution, you can, you can do that by going to www.plasticmodelmojo.com and use the heart icon in the upper right-hand corner. That takes you directly to our PayPal link, and there you can uh, make any kind of contribution you'd like. And we really appreciate it. It's going to go a long way to getting us down the road with uh, future episodes. Can't thank you folks enough. It's, it's just humbling to, to see that see that coming in all the time. So thank you. Yes, thank you very much. I agree. My shout out this this episode is to uh, our friends down under, the crew at On the Bench, Dave, Ian, and Julian. Uh, they're about to get on an airplane for a long, long time to get to come see us in Omaha. Their last episode, if you haven't listened to it, you should go listen to it. It's on the model contest that they were going to uh, in Melbourne. And um, it's interesting to listen to them talk about the contest in Australia. And I'll be interested when we get to Omaha and we get to sit there and share some time with them to discuss with them what the differences are in the contests. I know folks from the U.S. who've gone over to England or to Europe talk about some of the big differences they see at the big contests um, compared to what an IPMS national is like. And I think ours are more, the Australian shows are more like our shows, but I really can't wait to spend some time with those guys and um, kind of pick their brains about what they see as the, the the similarities and the differences. So my shout out is the OTB guys, 38 days. Can't wait to see you all. Uh, Hope to see you all and maybe just maybe share a beer or two. Well, my next one goes to a past plastic model mojo guest, Stephen Reed. 
And he's one of the moderators over at the Facebook T34 interest group and T34 modeling group. Counter to John Bonani, based on some of my recent posts, he gave me a few props and said, folks rush me to get this done. Just need to chill and back off basically because uh, of the amount of work I'm putting into each component on it. But uh, the project is com- is closing this sojourn of mine of the ZIS2. Uh, I do appreciate the kind words. And just in fact, this came in tonight, uh, right before we record this episode. So, Stephen, uh, what if he's going to be at Nats? I don't know. Maybe. You have to ask him. I will. Or he can chime in after he hears this. So, Steve, thanks. I'm almost done. It's going to get there. But uh, I appreciate the recognition for what I what was trying to accomplish there. We'll see if I get there in the end. But uh, it will get finished. Well, that's awesome. So, uh, Mike, I, 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 think we're, I think we're at the end of the episode. We are at the end of this episode, Dave, and as we always say, so many kits, so little time. See you soon, Mike. All right, man. Don't drown your own swimming pool. I will. You too. All right. Thank you.